Hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 93, Broken and Beloved Pastors, part three. Hello and welcome. My name is Lori Krieg and I am the executive director of Hole in My Heart Ministries and we are coming at you from Grand Rapids, Michigan and I am alongside licensed therapist, Argyle expert, sporting that Argyle today. So he's wearing it and we love it. <laughs> but my husband too, his name is Matt Krieg. Hello. Hey, we also have our producer and the most professional radio voice among us. However, Steve, yeah. you may get usurped because oh, our guest yeah. today has a pretty good radio voice. Good so pipes, look out. Pipes, yeah. Yeah. But that guy Flow masters. <laughs> with the reigning uh, professional radio voice, his name is producer Steve. Hello. <laughs> JK I'm not, on I'm that. not even going to compete today. I'm All not right. even going to participate. All right. Well, we will get to know our guest today and his equally professional voice. Mm -hmm. We'll see. Uh, in our third and final episode in our mini series, we're doing on broken and beloved pastors. And we're focusing on pastors who leave the church in for whatever reason, either mega or small. And those of us who are perhaps not pastors, we wonder the why or the what happened next. And so instead of promoting gossip and just guessing, we're going to talk directly to them. And I believe and hope and pray break down some strongholds that the enemy has when we isolate and keep things silent and guessing. So today we're going to feature our dear friend, Brad Claver, who have known for at least 15-ish years, when you say, okay, uh, since high school. So Brad, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. Yeah, we're so glad to have you. Um, because you guys have not known Brad for that decade or so, let's hear a little bit more. Uh, he is a husband and father of four, and he's a pastor, spiritual director, and coach walking the healing journey and inviting others to do the same. He vocationally served in a church for 13 years in the role of pastor of pastoral ministry, where when that time concluded, he learned and is still learning. Can we really ever say like a past tense learned about anything spiritual? I don't know. Anyway, mm -hmm. but he's learning his value came from not what he did, but from God's outrageous love for him. And I'm super excited for you all to hear more of his story. But first question of the week from last week is if we were to walk into your house, your apartment or wherever you live, what would be like one to three things that we would see in your said house that are that just scream you? Brad, we're going to start with you. Oh, you're going to start with me. We are. Oh, I have been thinking about this for a little bit. Um, I think when you, we, we moved actually into a new house uh, in, uh, in March and had to do a ton of work to it because uh, there was actually nothing about the house that we liked when we bought it. Oh, snap. Um, but uh, factoring in the seasonal life that I've been in, uh, we ran out of money. So, uh, what you would see if you walked in the house that would, would speak to who I am is, um, you would see a, a pretty, um, pretty large, expansive, generous kitchen space hey because, uh, I love to cook mm. and not only do I love to cook, but I love it when people are in the kitchen with me. Oh. Because I just think that that's a place of deep connection, and uh, and you'd also see a really beautiful range there. So it's a <laughs> it's a workhorse, and it's a bit of a splurge. But uh, I love the kitchen, and and so you'd see that. Uh, you'd also see a lot of green, a lot of plant life. Hmm. Um, I love uh, I love 
green and, and gardening and getting my hands dirty. And I love, I love having plants all around the house. It just brings life. Hmm. Um, so you see a lot of plants and then, uh, you'd see a lot of unfinished jobs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you'd see fi- uh, smoke detectors hanging from the ceiling. You'd see <laughs> outlet covers that should be there, but that aren't, you'd see, um, various, uh, things that, uh, certain people would have finished by now, but, uh, I don't because, uh, I tend to just get, get right at something and then, uh, tend to get bored and move on to the next thing. So, uh, those are, those are three things you'd see in my work house. in progress is what that sounds like. To it's, me. it's, it's a metaphor for life, right? Yeah. It's just, it keeps there me, keeps me humble. <laughs> I just think that's great. Matt, which listener stood out to you and why? Yeah, I felt immediately drawn to Danny on Facebook. I got to say my sports equipment because I love to play with my friends more than almost anything else in the world. My guitar because I love to sing and my wife and I's vast collection of board games because I love to play with my friends. The second thing that he said was a bunch of sports equipment, which which took me back because... I just remember my hockey bag that sat in our apartment when we first got married for so long. Oh, it smelled so and it bad. Basically, just disintegrated before my eyes. It did. It <laughs> so, spontaneously combusted one day. It's like I'm out. I can't yeah, even. It do gave this. up every hope of ever <laughs> yeah. ever being used again. And so I just felt a definite like just memory lane thing when he was talking about sports equipment because he loves playing with his friends, and then board games, <laughs> board games because again loves playing with his friends, and so. For for me personally, when you walk into our house, I could only think of one thing that really described me because so much of our house is just the chaos of kids. Um, but the one thing is we have a, a very big kind of kitchen table or dining room table, um, and they can expand to seat like up to 14 people. Mm-hmm. And that was something that when Lori and I got married, we really wanted to make our house a place where um, there was community and people could come in and get a meal and hospitality and all that kind of stuff. And so the big table, I think, was the only one I could think of. True that. Mm. Steve? I liked what uh, Missy said. A box of Intamin's donuts, just keeping it real. Also, all the things belonging to a teen and a tween strewn across the floor, also keeping it real. And books, lots and lots of books, because I can't be reading less than three at any one time. I'm like wondering why only one box of Entenmann donuts. Like, Is that how you say that? Entenmann? You Ent- just, Entenmann? I don't know. I, you just rocked it out well. I, I just was like, I was like, I, I am I not picking that one because I don't I want to say that out loud. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't think about it. I just said it. <laughs> I would probably have several boxes of those donuts. But uh, yeah, no, and I also relate to all things teen and tween for me. Uh, I got teenage boys, so that means just like food wrappers left everywhere. Yeah. And uh, I feel like I talk about that a lot, about the mess that my boys make. So I'm going to try to just like... next week. Lament. There you go. There you go. We'll just (laughs) lament that. But uh, yeah. And also books. But for us, it's also movies. I'm a big movie guy, story guy. So we have kind of a very big TV. Um, (laughs) Adequate. Is that funny? I don't know. I've got a story about my TV, but anyway, it's it's large. No, tell and, the story now. Okay, well, um, last spring the TV broke. Mm-hmm. No explanation, 
And I contacted the company and they were like, oh, it's out of warranty. I was only two years old, but I didn't get the extended warranty. Fail. Yeah, fail mm -hmm. right there. Anyway, they were like, well, we can send somebody out. Okay, $150. Sure, okay, I'll eat that. Then the guy goes, oh, yeah, the problem is a problem that I can't fix modularly. I need to put an entire new panel on it, and that's like $900. Nope. Big old big screen. The, that was more than I paid for the TV itself. <laughs> yep. Um, cool. Yeah. So anyway, long story short, I figured out how to do it myself. Thank you, YouTube. And like another $100 later, I had the parts, and I fixed it, and I did it myself, and it's up and running, so everything's fine. That's awesome. Yeah. So that's me. I chose Julian from Facebook, which, guys, if you want to answer our question of the week, you can friend me on Facebook, Lori Cree, K-R-I-E-G, or you can join our podcast Facebook group. Just look up Hole in My Heart Podcast. Uh, find me on Instagram. I'm the most active Facebook Instagram, but I also post it on Twitter as well, or email podcast at HMHministries.com. Okay, Julian, I liked your answer. Hey, Lori, this is Julian. The three things you would find when you walk into my home would be books all over the house, pretty much on every side table and countertop space, bookshelf everywhere. You'd also find hues of blue and purple as you come down the hallway and into our living room, just in every single piece of artwork. And then there's also large family photos of everybody throughout the house. Can't wait to meet you. Bye. And he said, the last thing was, when are you coming again? And what dietary restrictions, if any? Because I literally didn't even finish reading the whole thing. And I was like, oh, I want to go there. So I was starting to type, when can I come? And I was like, oh, and he invited me. So Julian, we're going to hang out. So don't worry about that. Uh, the reason I appreciated it is when you walk into our house, we have the open floor plan, blah, blah. We didn't design it, but it just came with the house. Uh, but right in the front there is this huge roll top desk that Matt and I got for free when we lived in California and we finished it together when I was like seven months pregnant. And I would love for you guys to envision us being like holding hands and staining it with delight. But pretty much I was grumpy the whole time. That's about all I remember. But the desk is awesome and very much reminds me of like a piece of myself because I like to write. There's also books everywhere because I'm reading books for this podcast. And so those are a couple of the things. Okay, Brad, time to dive in, man. And you know what it's coming because you've listened to this podcast. So yes, the first set of questions is about the gospel. Mm -hmm. So if the gospel is, I am more loved than I can imagine and more sinful than I believe, when was the gospel first good news for you, brother? And how is it still? Ooh, I love that question. I love it's always super encouraging to listen to people's responses with that question. And I knew that that question was going to come because I have listened to the podcast several times. And I, I have to be honest with you, and this is maybe without going too further, too too far into the details of the story that we'll get to, and and what has all unfolded in my life, and what the what the what the father has done. But um, I feel like the the reality is is that if if this is allowed, um, it has been this kind of gradual unfolding of good news in different pieces throughout my, my journey of, of faith. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think probably really in, at the, at the beginning part of that being right around the age of 15. Um, but I, I think because of the way in which I, uh, felt the need to live my life, uh, I, I think that there was just a corner or sliver of the good news that was actually applied to, 
my heart in that moment. And then I can think of uh, another another season where there was it was coming out of a great season of grief uh, out of college and uh, and and of deep loss and of uh, of 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 real questioning. Um, if God is love, if God is good, if God is, is present and if he's actually truly who he says he is in scripture because of the experience that I was, I was having and the, the, the grief that I was experiencing, uh, at that time. And, and, and there was a very clear, uh, experience, uh, of the Holy spirit really inviting me to, uh, to see of opening my eyes and of, of, of experiencing, uh, I think another key component in a, in a, a huge part of the good news of the gospel. Um, but you know, interestingly enough, I think when I look at that, you know, that question and I stare at it and I listen to it, um, and I think about it and ponder it, um, I think the full expanse of the good news of Jesus Christ and the fullness of God's love being far more for me than what I ever knew and, and having in, in all of that in light of the fullness of my brokenness and sin, uh, I'd say 18 months ago. Yeah. Hmm. Mm. That's so awesome. Let's hear how you need him today by diving into your story and I would love for you to start, Brad. I've had the privilege of hearing your story, pieces of it a few times. The, the real story, the post 18 months ago um, in, in speaking alongside you a couple times. But when you were 10 or 11, you had an incident in church uh, that you watched happen. What happened mm. and why did that impact you? Yeah, uh, good question. So back when I was 10 or 12, um, I've been a part of a, of a church here in Grand Rapids and, um, and, and my, my family faithfully attended that church. And, uh, over the course of two or two or so years, uh, I watched and, and witnessed three different incidences of excommunication, hmm. um, public excommunication. Uh, in fact, all happening on a Sunday night service. Um, but, uh, the reality is, is that those, all those three excommunication, instances all had to do with men who had either been found out to be in a same-sex relationship or admit to same-sex attraction. Mm. Mm. And, uh, and that for me, uh, began a, a journey, not only of deeper questioning, uh, but also for me, a, uh, a beginning of, uh, of 25 years of hiding. Mm. So in that time, you had a sense of attractions, not toward women, but toward men, mm-hmm. even at that young age. Yeah. So uh, I think that, that 12 year, 10, 10, 12 year, year age, uh, you, I think you begin to uh, pick up on the fact that there is this natural tendency for boys to like girls and girls to like boys. There's schoolyard banter around that. There's moms that begin to say things like, Oh, she's so cute. Mm. She's, she would be such a fun friend for you or, you know, things like that. And, and, um, I think at that point around that age, when I started to kind of become intuitive to what was happening around me, uh, in relation to that, I began to also pick up on the reality that, um, the way that girls look at boys, I look at boys mm-hmm. or the way that, uh, that conversations were had surrounding how, uh, of the coupling of boys and girls, uh, it didn't fit what I was experiencing, um, inside. So 
Brad, there were decades then between then, or at least 15, I don't know how many years exactly, but between then and now. And um, so what did you do with those attractions? There you were in a Christian home, Christian environment, like throughout your life, great parents, like, you know, you don't fit any stereotypes that I can mm-hmm. think of. So what did you do with those attractions? Yeah. Well, I, I think going back to that, um, that kind of watching this whole excommunication process unfold in a church that I loved and with people that I knew and, and that I was familiar with or, or leaders in the church. And, and I, I, I began watching, I remember exactly where I was in the church in the balcony with some friends sitting at night, uh, watching this unfold and, and, and in me, this internal wrestle of, um, a fear of, mm. of this reality that, I don't know where this came from. I don't know why I have this. I don't know where this all began or what was done to me to make me like this. But all I know based on what I'm seeing now and it become a pattern over three times now, uh, all I know is that, that this is what happens if people find out that you admit it and then you are shown the door. Mm. And uh, again, I'm 10, I'm 12, whatever age that was, um, you know, we have a lot as children, we have a lot of capacity to form conclusions that aren't necessarily, uh, true and that aren't necessarily based on reality, but based on the reality that was becoming true in me and what I was seeing in front of me, uh, th- there was a direct connection between what I was feeling. And, uh, if it was shared honestly, that, that I would have to leave the church mm. or I'd be kicked out of the church. And, um, you know, I remember thinking, but I don't want to leave the church. I don't. I don't want to, I don't want to leave my family. I want to, I want to be in the church. In fact, I want to follow Jesus. Uh, that much I knew at that time. Um, but I think at that point I said to myself and, and, you know, you'd be careful with, with what you say, even as a child, when you make an internal vow, an, an internal vow. But, um, after watching that happen, I committed and said, I will never tell anyone mm. ever. And, uh, that, that commitment was kept for 25 years until last, uh, last, uh, March of 2018. So there was a lot of time and years from making that vow until you, uh, till that 18 months ago when you really came forward with both yourself and, um, your family, you're mm-hmm. married now to your wife and have these four kids. Um, and it's funny because Brad and I actually knew each other both in high school and in college off and on. And our moms tried to set us up ish, or at least like hint at you guys should talk to each other. And we, were we both, did the West Michigan mom thing. Yeah, <laughs> and so well-intentioned, yeah. but little did they realize what was going on behind the scenes, but bless their heart. Um, but what were some things that were perhaps hurtful that, mm. We don't always know when we're being hurtful. So like our moms weren't trying, they weren't hurtful. That was just sweet momness. But for you, what were some things that either pastors said or friends said that they just assume people call it heteronormativity. That's just the assumption that everybody's attracted to the opposite gender. So what were some things that you heard that perhaps even cemented that vow in you, Brad? Mm -hmm. Oh man, uh, a lot actually. Um, and, and it's in, in fact, um, 
you know, the last 18 months had actually been a journey of uncovering so many of those things of mm-hmm. actually having to let those things, those, those hurts that I think were suppressed and were forced down and were detached from kind of my thought process to survive and to thrive even, um, I've had to really let those things out and expose them not to everybody else, but to myself to actually look at them and, and to admit finally how much hurt there actually was. Um, you know, I think growing up in the nineties, growing up in, you know, where on the playground, when you're growing up with, with boys, um, the reality was that anything that was deemed, uh, lame or uncool or girly or, um, nerdy or name anything negative that you would want, you would hate to be called on the playground when you're in elementary and middle school. And all of it was deemed gay. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think part of that is growing up with this undercurrent of understanding or of belief that no matter what you do, you have this, you are gay, therefore you're bad. Right. And and that in and of itself was, you know, that's kind of an umbrella statement there, but having to actually go through all of those pieces. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I've had to walk through, you know, the reality that when I was in first grade, I, I sang in church. I love to sing. I love to sing. And I, I was in church and I sang a duet with my mom in first grade. Mm-hmm. And, and it was wonderful. Had so much fun. And then Monday came around and some kid in first grade said, singing's for girls. Oh, Guess God. you stopped singing. Oh. And, um, you know, I was the kid, I was the kid growing up that would, I would, I would Saturday mornings, I'd close the door of my bedroom and I would, I wouldn't let anybody in all day long because I was busy rearranging my room and staging oh. my, my shelves and making it look different. And then I would open the door on a Saturday afternoon and I would parade everybody in for them to see what I had done in arranged because I'm wired as an arranger. But that, mm-hmm. when you start to see in popular culture, that interior design and maybe even the design element of a person in, in general unless you're an architect or, you know, you design something manly. Yeah. Man. Um, guns that, yeah. And I can't, can't shoot guns worth anything, but, um, <laughs> that, that again was either feminine or gay. So and, sorry. and so there was piece after piece after piece that way, where when you're in a place that I was, where I was already in that mode of everything I do, I have to be careful. Everything I, I say, I talk with my hands. I, I'm a, I'm a, I hand gesture a lot and, people would make comments about that and I would immediately connect it to the messaging of those limp-wristed homosexuals and those statements that you would hear. And, um, and so there was that. And, uh, you know, shortly after I finally, um, last year began to share this part of myself and this part of my journey, um, you know, having to have a conversation with, with my parents and saying, you know, there's, there's been part of our relationship that has never actually been all that safe because, um, I didn't choose this. Yeah. I didn't ask for this. And yet every time, uh, I would hear statements come out of your mouth of, you know, those gay people, they're just choosing mm. this. 
And we've had some amazing conversations. In fact, part of this whole journey of the last 18 months is that we sold our house and we moved in with my parents for five months with all our kids and all our chaos. <laughs> and that five months actually proved to be a really healing experience with them to be able to talk through some of these things, to be able to have conversations in the evening after the kids went to bed with a lot of wine, um, <laughs> sometimes maybe too much wine, but sometimes that was needed. But uh, with just the opportunity to really walk backwards and to talk through different things and to experience healing in ways that, uh, that I don't think I even knew that I needed. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, I think the reality is, is that we don't know the water we swim in sometimes, um, until it's, until it's courageously, um, sort of brought to light mm -hmm. for us. Mm -hmm. And, and I think for me, even that has, that proved to be the case, even for my own kind of undoing is realizing I didn't realize the water I was swimming in to overcompensate for this part of me that had been deemed so disgusting and mm -hmm. so inappropriate and so unwelcome totally in the circles of relationships that I was a part of that that wake up call uh, has made a tremendous difference. Uh, I can relate so much to that and maybe everyone in this room, but I know I can that fragmentation. I've talked about that on stages. Mm -hmm. Like it's not like a, I felt it and it's like, Oh, let me surrender this to Jesus. This yeah. sin thing. It's like, no, it's not even, like you, you can't even look at it. You yeah. to cope. Yeah. You have to just detach and totally. fragment. But you've alluded to this. We've talked about this, this 18 months mm -hmm. ago. What happened? Yeah. Where, you know, this is a broken and beloved pastor series. So you were a pastor for 13 years. I was. And then how did this all come out? Yeah. So I had been a part of a church uh, in, in Grand Rapids here for, um, for about 12 years and uh, serving, serving in different capacities, but, um, you know, for the longest time serving as a community life pastor and, um, you know, love, love the team, love the, love the community. And, uh, in fact, at one point or another thought that I would be a lifer there, that I just would serve there. And, uh, there was a moment in time where, uh, really sensed the call from the spirit, uh, the Holy spirit to, um, to be a part of a church plant. This church that I was a part of, um, was always talking about wanting to be a church planting church and, and there were different opportunities for that, but all that to say, you know, ended up receiving this call and, and, and obeying and being paired with another person who had, has become, uh, you know, one of my deepest friends. And, um, I think that the transition from 13 years or 12 years in a place, in a community with people that I knew had become far more comfortable than what I even would have realized. Um, in fact, I can say now that um, I actually didn't need God mm. to do my job as a pastor, as a pastor. I didn't. I didn't need him to show up. I didn't have that need for a desperate move of God in everything I did and everything we set out to do hmm. to be successful. And, um, I would never have said that to you. Wow. I would never have even probably seen that, but it was true. And, um, and so when, when I, when I transitioned to this church planning process and this new team, this new partnership, new vision, new place, new location, all these news, 
um, things just started to come to the surface mm-hmm. in me. Start things just started to kind of get. I say it now. It's like the it's like the Holy Spirit was like, nope, we're not pushing this down anymore. We are pushing it Shake up it to the surface, and mm-hmm. you cannot stop this. And and um, you know, I think. F- for me to have a church planning partner who had become a dear friend who is willing to say honest things that were extremely painful and hard to hear, not because he was being mean, but because the things he was saying was directly hitting a nerve that was connected to a wound in me. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I got so angry with him because he, he would just, and out of love, he just, he wanted to hear my heart. He wanted to hear my voice. He kept asking that question, Brad, what's your voice? I don't, I don't feel like I know who you are. I don't feel like I know what your voice is in ministry <laughs> and what you really want to go for. And I'd say, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't, I don't get that. And he would bring up, you know, just observations that we would make. And he finally said, Brad, I think you perform. And I think you perform more than you even know. And that for me was as if I'm looking at this guy going, who let this guy behind the curtain of Oz? <laughs> um, it, no one is allowed back here. Hmm. And I think I felt in that moment, you know, r- it, over one conversation. So we planted the church in January of 2018, launched first week of January. And in February, we were in the middle of a conversation that got fairly heated because he was noticing these things. And I was getting aggravated and, and very irritated by what he was saying. And it got heated and all at once in the middle of it, all of a sudden I said, I lie to myself and I don't even know it. Hmm. And it was as if we just kind of both sat back in our chairs and he's just looking at me stunned and I'm looking at him stunned. And I just said, I don't even know where that came from. Hmm. And it was at that point where we both just kind of looked at it and said, okay, there's something going on here and you need to take a step back and you need some time and you need some time to just be. And so we agreed on that. He was gracious enough to actually take all of the, extra burden of me being a church planning partner. And all of a sudden now I'm not there, you know, for six weeks. And, um, and I stepped away and, and really, uh, you know, I was bound and determined to perform my way through that six weeks. (laughs) Um, because I'm, you know, you don't just snap your fingers and, you know, one day go, Oh, I perform. I'm going to stop performing. It doesn't, it's not that easy. I'm going to heal the crap out of this healing. Yeah. Yeah. I am, I am going to do it. it. And look the part of someone who doesn't perform anymore. So I spent, I spent hours at, at a prayer room. I, I mean, I, I did all the things guys. I did all of it. And, and for two weeks, um, you know, it was, it was a good, good two weeks off. And, uh, and then I was offered, uh, a, a, a cottage out on Lake Michigan, beautiful Lake Michigan, uh, for two solid weeks. And, and my wife, Michelle, who's just incredible. She said, just go, just go, just, just go and, and be, and don't worry about us. We'll be okay. You just need to hear from God. And, uh, I cried the entire way out to the lake shore that night that I left. And I, I wouldn't have been able to tell you at that time why I was so emotional, except that I just knew that something was going to come to an end mm. and I had no idea what that was. Mm. It was just this, this gut level feeling of something's coming to an end. And so, mm. um, first day I wake up and I'm ready to do it. I'm ready to perform my way through that again. And I wouldn't <laughs> have said that. And I was a nervous wreck because for the first time in a very, very, very long time, I was alone by myself with 
no one else's thoughts or opinions or ideas except for mine. And it scared me half to death because all at once, all of a sudden I'm sitting there going, uh, what do I do? Uh, you know, should I be reading this Bible? Like what, you know, how much scripture should I be reading? How much prayer should I be? And what if I fall asleep during prayer? What if I just want to read this book over here? Cause I'm really excited about it. Like what if, what if, what if, what if, and I'm like getting more and more frustrated with the fact that why can't I rest? Why can't I just let it go? Hmm. And, and, and so I began to get really frustrated and angry and, um, and I had been reading um, several books during this time. And, and, and one is, is, is called the furious longing of, of God. I think that's, that's what it is by Brennan Manning. And he talks about in that, in that, in the book, uh, a passage um, in the book talks about this breath prayer called, where you breathe in the name Abba and you breathe out the words, I belong to you. And I had been trying to do that on a regular basis in these prayer rooms this two weeks before. And, and there's a, um, a worship song that's connected to that called Abba. And so I'm in the cottage, I'm praying that prayer. I'm, I'm listening to the song. I'm doing all the things, everything I'm, 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 I'm doing it all right. I'm, I've set the stage for God right there and it didn't click. And I'm sitting there going, this isn't real for me. This, this isn't true. It, I, it's not true. I don't belong. Mm. It's not real. And, um, and so the next day I'm out on the beach and I am, I am mad as a hornet and, and just asking God, what, what do you want to show me? Where am I performing? What do I need to do to not perform anymore? <laughs> oh, and I had said during this time, it was as if God was starting to hold up all of these mirrors in front of me. And he was inviting me to look hard and long and the, at what I saw in the reflection and to look as unflinchingly as possible for as long as I needed to look and to own what I needed to own. And, and it wasn't this, you know, verbal, you know, audible, you know, confirmation from him, but it was like, it was almost as if there was this, this reality of you, if you want to know how, why and how you perform so much, you need to be willing to unearth it all. And you need to be willing to acknowledge everything and all of the ways in which different things have contributed to your performance orientation and your need to be this. And, and I knew exactly what that meant. And I was like, no, nah, no, no, that oh, is, man. that one is off limits that, uh, remember there was that promise back then, you know, uh, no. And, and I think part of it too is because I was married now, I had almost been married for nine years. And so there was almost this sense of this detachment from, uh, my same sex attraction, but the reality being that, um, that that had so much to do with why in, in, in all of my work in ministry, my concern was mostly to be what others needed me to be. Mm-hmm. And, and so I sat on the beach that day looking at two options, realizing that now I had gained enough awareness in this last two days to realize that if I just go back to what I had, how I had been living to just step back into ministry and not address this and not acknowledge it and not be open and honest about all of it, that I would now knowingly be deceiving myself Mm. and other people Mm. that it would be a choice now to be deceptive and that, that, that would have to be the, the, the life that I chose to live. And the reality being that, that as I looked at that, I just, it exhausted me to think about that. Mm, 
that now you woke up, it, you realized how tired you were. Absolutely. From how living that way. absolutely exhausted I yeah. was, but how much more exhausted I was going to have to become yep. to maintain that. Mm-hmm. But then the other option being, I could lose everything. Like I literally could lose everything. And like yet, your wife could leave you. Like my, yeah. nobody knew. And, and all bets were off. Yep. And everything was on the table. And yet the day before sitting there, I could not get out of my mind the reality that when I think about the statement, daddy, I belong to you. My answer is not me. And, and so the thought was that I either am, am bound and determined to now be self self deceptive and live in deceit or potentially lose everything and then and yet maybe possibly on the back side of it it could be true for me so you're saying by coming to grips both with yourself and with others instead of saying this what felt like false god i belong to you it could be true because it'd be the real you mm-hmm. coming to the father. Yeah. Because before that belonging to God meant I had to dress myself up, clean yep. myself off and bring my best self Yeah, in and, and, and my good golden boy self, yep. all my best behavior, all of my ability to hold everything together, to be yep. the glue, to make people happy, to be what others needed me to be, to bring that same kind of concept and, and life pattern to the father, then I could belong to you. And yet looking at how exhausting that had become and realizing, wow, is it possible that maybe for the first time I could experience what it means to truly come to the father as a child, not as a child who has to clean himself up first, but as a child who kicks and screams, who is messy, who is dirty, who is broken, who doesn't have the answers, who actually has moments of unbelief and wrestling and doubts in a way that I could never actually say before. And that is it possible that he might look at me and say, I just want you to sit at my table. You belong here. And the real you belongs here because really the fake Brad fake. And again, you didn't try and be fake. It was your coping mechanism. No, it was years and years of survival, of shielding, of, of developing a pattern of safety. Yeah. And so fake fake Brad really didn't belong to him because God didn't make him. Right. (laughs) Only real Brad, who is exactly what you so beautifully just described, belonged to him, but you needed to experience that. Yeah. And I, I have a sense where this is going that you did experience some belonging, but what, how did God show you you belonged with him through your wife? Oh. Well, I cried all the way back to Grand Rapids from Holland, uh, as is the case, because I just knew right away that I would need to, to go and, and share with her right away, um, that there wasn't any any need to, to make it any time. In fact, so I was given this cottage for two two weeks and I made it two days. Yeah. I came back after two days because there was really... Because you did it so well. Just kidding. Yes, I performed it so well. <laughs> no, because there was literally no more to know. Yeah, you There was got nothing it. else. You got your marching order. It was like, yep. well, there's there's no need to, to waste time here. Yep. You know what you need to do, Brad. And um, and I cried all the way home because I didn't know if, uh, if when I told Michelle if I'd ever see her again, if she'd ever want to be in the same space with me, if I'd ever see my kids again. And um, again... I think little boy, little 10 or 12 year old boy, all of a sudden is driving home, mm. realizing 
I might just experience exactly what I've most feared. Excommunication. Is that I'm going to be excommunicated from my family. Mm. I would never have said it at that point, but that's really the fear that was mm. in me. And yet that, that I think that in the calling of God saying, I'm just inviting you to come back, son. I'm mm. inviting you to come to know me and I'm, you're safe. You're going to be safe. And, and so, you know, the first night when I was, when I got home, you know, I'm ready to sit down with her and share with her. My heart's pounding. And all of a sudden the baby starts to cry and she has to go tend to the baby. And the night was over and, and I'm like, are you serious? Oh, buddy. <laughs> so the next day was, was a very emotionally distant day and she noticed it. She saw it. And, uh, when she, when I told her last that night, I, I said, you know, I'm about to tell you something and, um, I'm just going to give you permission. I, I, I need you to know that you can, you can say and ask whatever you need to say and ask and I'll listen and I'll answer as, as, as openly and honestly as, as mm-hmm. I, as I, as I can for as long as it needs to take. Um, and, um, it was a remarkable picture of grace. I already knew that I didn't deserve my wife. Um, I already knew that, that my, uh, my being able to be in a relationship with her was, was truly a, a gift from the, from the Lord. I didn't know at that point before then, um, how true she was as a gift to me. Mm. Um, because I do, I think God has, has imparted in my wife a grace to be able to see and empathize with people in a way that is incredibly unique and beautiful and speaks to the heart of God. And so while yes, it came as a surprise to her and yes, there were some very challenging days and challenging questions and challenging conversations. I continued with every kind of heaping amount of truth and honesty that began to be kind of unearthed more in front of her and unpacked with her. I just continued to be received by her. Mm -hmm. I continued to be, shown grace and forgiveness by her. I continued to be met by a woman who fully and fully knows the, the extent of her own need for Jesus mm-hmm. and for her to then meet me in that place, not to stand at the edge and say, uh, I'm here, but you know, you're way down there and I'm, I'm up here kind of a thing. Like I experienced I experienced a partner who was willing to get down into the dirt Mm. and into the mud. And just that's beautiful. And I, we can relate on many levels, except she sounds so exceptional, but just to be clear for listeners, like it's not like you came to her and you confessed some secret, like family or something. Like it wasn't like you had like a secret boyfriend or anything, but it just was, you had experienced what you revealed to her and the grace she extended you, um, was you had had these ongoing attractions and it wasn't like you turned them off. Like you still noticed them even in your marriage, right? Like I I know how this rolls. Um, and I'm guessing there was struggles with lust off and on and just, you weren't maybe honest and vulnerable with her there. Yeah. Was she asking those sorts of questions and extending grace there? On every level. Okay. I mean, we, yeah, questions from, I mean, the most heartbreaking question, you know, all of those basic questions, because you're right. I mean, there was, there was no, you know, there was no affair. There was no, um, you know, hidden, you know, action or anything like that. It was just that here is this major part of yeah 
the man that you're married to. Yeah. And he's kept it from you. Yeah. It <laughs> you feels know, like intentional deceit, yeah. even though like it, it, that's even hard to know. Like, was it intentional deceit? Like you knew once you woke up to it, it would have been right. But before that, because you had been so detached, you just noticed it, but it was like, no, I already said, I'm not going to say that. It right. wasn't even like you had explored your options Correct. before getting married. Correct. Like tell her, not tell her. Yeah. It was just, Duh, I don't tell her. Yeah. And for me, part of it was, I think, also realizing that I didn't actually go looking for my wife. I didn't, I wasn't going to pursue a woman. I was, by the time I was 22, 23 years old, I left, I graduated a Christian college, which basically means if you're, if you're single, when you graduate a Christian college, you failed. Yeah. <laughs> basically you failed. <laughs> and I was acutely aware of that failure and the fact that I did not leave married. And, uh, and the reality being that as, like I said, you know, earlier on, as far as these extensions of the gospel that I've experienced over time, uh, during that season of, of really deep grief coming out of college and, and experiencing the gospel in that way, I also began to experience a, a new and, and, um, more biblical and more kind of, um, holistic understanding of, of our brokenness. And that including our sexuality and all of the things that you guys do so brilliantly to talk about on this podcast. And, and so for me, there was a real commitment to say, all right, then I surrender my sexuality to you. And I'm just going to commit to being single and celibate the rest Mm -hmm. of my life. And I'm not going to try to fake it, fake it or fix it anymore. And so the way in which Michelle and I began to be in a relationship, um, is something that is is completely and utterly ordained by God. In fact, I, I mean, I heard you on a, on a separate podcast recently talking about how you and Matt began to walk this journey of relationship. And there's a lot of similarities there. Yeah. There are so many similarities there in terms of how my relationship with Michelle began and the holistic nature of what marriage really looks like and it not being just something based on this romantic view of, of sex and love and attraction that unfortunately um, I don't want to have that type of pressure on me that when I'm a 65 year old guy that I must still look attractive to my wife, you know, but the reality being that God gave me this new and fresh and true, truer, I'm still learning perspective of what marriage was. So then when I was in this relationship and I have this performance orientation, now I'm no longer just performing to keep this hiding. I'm performing to be the very best husband I can possibly be. And then when the kids came, the very best dad that I could possibly be and exhaust myself in that way. So it just goes on and on and on in this cycle of performance that way. So one of the more heartbreaking questions that Michelle asked me in, in all of it, amongst all of those others was she looked at me and she said, so did you, am I just here to fix you and, and are you faking it? And she deserved all the freedom in the world to ask oh, that yeah. question. And oh, it's totally. a natural question. And it is by the grace of God that I can look at her in the eyes and say, absolutely not. That actually what I have for you, Michelle, is something I've never experienced in my entire life mm-hmm. with anyone specifically another woman yeah and my heart and life is deeply committed to walking this journey of marriage out with you until death do we part no questions asked so you essentially you come out to your wife you come out to yourself first you're Mm -hmm. coming out to god it's like you're in and it's really just shredding this shell this skin of performance and saying no this is who i am and it's not this is 
gay Brad. It's like, this is the real Brad with yeah. all the faults and throwing down all the, brokenness. the performance <laughs> and, and just being who God made me to be. And, and it wasn't like you just came out like a full grown Phoenix, you know, like you burned it down and here now you're good. Like you're, you were discovering it. Well, the life was burning down. I'll just say yeah. that it, yeah. something was burning down. Yeah. It wasn't the Phoenix, but the life was starting to burn down. Let's just say that. And a piece of that was quitting your job as a pastor. Yep. Um, I guess just briefly, how did that go? Yeah. So like I said before, you know, this season of six weeks, I would characterize as, as one mirror after another being propped up in front of me and, and, and needing to own that, needing to look deeply at that, needing to, to walk that out and say, I'm culpable for all of these things. I'm not necessarily fully to blame. That's not what I'm saying, but own my culpability in the process that got me to where I am mm-hmm. and, and recognizing all of those things. And again, because you don't just turn off performance like a light switch. Um, It was an incredibly intense six weeks that pretty well emptied me. And, you know, as you can imagine, I, I went from telling my wife to telling my, my parents to telling my siblings to telling some close friends to telling my church planning partner, to telling the elders, to telling the staff of the church, all of these things. And by the end of it, I had nothing left in the tank. And, you know, it wasn't again, as if me stepping away from the church was because there was some moral failure. You know, in fact, when we sat in the, in the, in the meeting with the elders and I shared all of this, they said, Brad, there's no, there's nothing disqualifying you from stepping back into your role. So you didn't get the excommunication that you were terrified of. They didn't hear attractions to men. No. In fact, it was, it was so fascinating because they didn't, they, their response wasn't actually attractions to men. You're out. It was Brad, the attractions, the same sex attraction doesn't bother you. It's all of the deceit. Hmm. It's all of the, the deceit that, and I'm sitting there going, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like there was almost the separation between, you know, this thing and that thing. And we want to parse them out. But the reality being that so much of it was entrenched because you know, the thing is, is when you walk through life yep. with the experience that I experienced that at every turn you are aware of your badness. Yeah. Abundantly more than everybody else's badness. You learn to cope or you, you, you don't. Yep. And when I was a kid growing up in specifically junior high and high school, if I showed you the Bible that I had as a kid and you looked at it and I still have it, those passages of scripture are circled and circled and underlined and notes and all of these things. I mean, the Uh, well, the the, the pages, the the pages with the verses pertaining to homosexuality and marriage are the most well-worn pages in my childhood Bible. And I begged God to, to either fix me or switch me or end me. Yep. And the reality was, is that none of that was happening. And so I took matters in my own hands and learned the art of religion, yep. learned that, oh, I can actually feel accepted and acceptable in the church by serving more, by doing more. And I did. So, you know, standing in front of the elders and, and, and unearthing all of this in front of them, 
you know, the reality wasn't that I'm sitting here saying I've done something that is, is a moral failure or is something that, that, you know, disqualifies me from serving in the church. The reality was, is that, that this journey that God was taking on me, uh, taking me on had just completely wiped me out. Yeah. And so instead of just simply saying, well, I need to preserve my job and I need to preserve my reputation and I need to just, you know, I had people suggest like, maybe you just need to get back in, back in the reins. You've been away for so long. You know, you're just out of it. You're a people person. I'm like, I am a people pleaser. Mm -hmm. That is the issue. Not being a people person. I am a people pleaser and God is breaking me of that or beginning to break me of that. And so, um, so the, the decision I went in with just to say that it is the most loving thing for the church and it is the most truthful thing about where I was at personally to just resign mm -hmm. and to step away. And, um, and so that was the decision that I had come to the, the, you know, they did not, they did not ask me to leave. They did not excommunicate me. Those fears that I had were not realized in that way again. Um, Can yeah. I ask though, they said, they mm -hmm. said the deceit thing, like you weren't deceiving anyone intentionally. Correct. Like, that's, that's a part of it is it's people are like, did you just weigh every single morning? Like, should I tell people? No, I'm going to put on my lying hat. Yeah. It was a coping mechanism that you just Correct. laid out for us. And yeah. so even when they ask that essentially like, you know, Brad, it's not the attractions, it's the deceit. It, it's really neither one was necessarily even chosen yeah. other than it was like, that's how you live your life yep. as a Christian man who wants to love Jesus and grew up in the nineties. Yeah. And so it wasn't an option. So I just want to highlight mm -hmm. that for people is it's not even that you were living a life of deceit. Nope. You were living a life. You were living the only life you thought you could I, live. I was living the best life as a Christian as I thought I could. Yep. And, and I was doing and living in a, in a way that was uh, doing honoring things for the kingdom. You know, it wasn't even that they were bad things. It was, there were some great, you know, I don't look at my years as a pastor and say they were, they were wasted. Yeah. Not, nothing was good. You know, God uses broken people. Absolutely. Even when we're not even aware that we're that broken, yeah. he uses us. He especially uses those kind of broken people, including myself. So yeah, it just, I think that when you start to walk that journey of awareness and all of that, some comes to the you know, comes up. And you begin to see it for what it is, you realize I have been lying to myself and don't even know it. Yep. Yep. That's it. Matt, what do you got? Well, I was just the whole deceit thing because it can very quickly, you know, especially in, in your situation, it can be very quickly just like, no, this isn't, this is me denying myself, mm -hmm. taking up my cross <laughs> and, and following Christ. Yeah. And, and that's what you're legitimately trying to do. I mean, in that it's not like a, yeah, it's not like a malicious deceit. It's not the same as when I was, you know, knee deep, neck deep, head deep over my head with pornography mm -hmm. and self-protecting through like outright bold face lies. Like where I'm like, no, I'm doing great. Yeah. Everything's fine. Yeah. And so, okay. So, so here you are, you're, you've come through this season of, of learning how still learning probably how to not people please. Mm -hmm. And, and here you are, and I can't help but think of a, a previous 
guest we had that said that the hardest thing for them wasn't walking into a bar it was walking into small group because mm. that's where the performance comes out oh yeah that's where the that's where like the mask goes on and you put on your 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 golden boy face or whatever mm. and so coming here I, I guess for if you if you're able to get personal yeah because you haven't already been um, how, what bar do you want? <laughs> yeah. what, what was it like even preparing to come here? Because it'd be very oh, sure. performance yeah. to, to, to put it, paint a good picture yeah. and, and to say like, you know what? And I did this and now here I am and here's the real me and woo, but it's not the real me. Yeah. And, and so I guess, how are you doing now? No. Yeah. Good question. Well, you know, after, after those six weeks and after the resignation, it was almost as if, uh, I was allowed to come up for air for about two months. Hmm. Um, like, like I thought that was the last wave and the only wave of this process. Of processing your attractions and of processing my attractions of, of all of the dismantling of this ideal image of myself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was like, no, I'm going to let you come up for air for a couple months and then we're going to go back down. <laughs> uh, we're going to go even deeper. And, um, because I think that it's one thing to recognize, okay, I do this mm -hmm. and I know where this comes from. It's another way to recognize how tied I am, not only to that idol of performance, mm -hmm. but how that idol of performance contributes to my worship of all of these other idols. Um, and that was the most devastating part of this. And that was actually the thing that brought me to the end of myself was, was come August, um, I lost the ability to move half my body. Uh, I, I experienced an electrical shock, uh, in moving some boxes in our, in our basement and I got shocked in the light. And I, uh, I, after that for five months, couldn't hardly sleep, couldn't raise my arms above my head, couldn't hold my kids without being in excruciating pain and couldn't exercise. Mm. And, uh, and that lasted the entire fall and into the winter. Um, I applied for job after job, 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 after job and got no's every single one. Mm. Um, we wanted to be a part of the church that we planted after I resigned and we really truly wanted to be there. Um, unfortunately I wasn't given the ability to resign in the way that I had hoped, um, when asked what I wanted to say, my answer was, well, everything. Hmm. Because I've always longed to be a part of a church, right? It's the thing that we always long mm -hmm. for. Yeah. It's the thing we're also, Community. you know, want for ourselves. Yeah. Yep. Is I've always dreamt of being a part of and leading a church community that we can put all of the stuff out in front of the, in the open and all of the stuff that we carry generally behind our backs unflinchingly wrap our arms around each other mm -hmm. and fix our eyes on Jesus and say, let's worship him. Yeah. And unfortunately I think it, I think that it was a well-meaning attempt to love my family and I, mm -hmm. and to protect us. What ended up happening is in, in an effort of, of that it required diplomacy, which requires vague reasons. Yep. Mm -hmm. which isn't ultimately helpful for a community no. because not only is that saying, well, I don't know who, like what happened to this person. I don't know, um, what events went down. Um, 
it continues to propagate this this kind of growth of 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 masking and hiding in the larger community because if this person couldn't even share what was, honestly what was going on well then i certainly can't and and at the same time when you're unclear and honest about what truly happened most of us start to form stories and narratives in our minds mm-hmm. yeah fill in the blank and so unfortunately for us we went from being um, very well known in that community. I mean, we planted the church to, um, to strangers mm. in a matter of a week. We went away for a, a week and a half on vacation to get some R and R came back and it was, it was as if, because no one knew how to approach us, how to move towards us, how to engage with us. They just didn't. Mm. And, um, Unfortunately, you can only leave a a worship service so often in tears um, Mm -hmm. before you realize we just can't do this anymore Mm -hmm. and finally gave ourselves permission. And I think even in that, I was I was still trying to hold it together. I played that role as a kid. I got to hold things together. I played that role at the church that I was a part of for 13 years. I got to hold it together. And I think in leaving still and wanting to attend that church, I was still operating from that place, that identity of I'm the guy, I'm the glue, I'm the guy who holds it all together. And when I could finally, like when it was almost that death blow of Brad, that is not your job. You are playing me. Mm. You are, you are, you are taking the role that I am called and I am only able to take and you have to step down. And so even though I had resigned from my job, I had yet to resign from my role that I played. And that was probably the most painful part of that. But in stepping away from that, in walking away from that, yes, it was losing. It was was moving away from the community that we loved. It meant risking being misunderstood. And y'all know about that core need. Um, it was, it was realizing that I don't feel safe because I can't get a dang job. Yeah. Um, not only that, it was also, um, I don't feel like a man because I can't provide for my family. And so this second wave of, of like mirrors looking at now, let's look at where your identity has been found not just in this work in the church, but in all of the ways that you've been performing to maintain the ideal picture of yourself, those things are all going to come to an end. Mm. And not that I have left that place, but I will say this, in January, February, and March of this year, I was at the lowest place I've ever been in my entire life. You know, Laura, you saw me at one of the the forums. I mean, I just was like a zombie in February. Mm. I mean, there's just nothing left of me. And I, and I just kind of went through life, um, at an all time low and you know, it's, it's, it's just this beautiful thing that happens where what I've come to see is that, you know, resurrection depends not at all on me, Mm -hmm. that the work of resurrection is God's and God's alone. And at some point in April and May, I'm looking back going, how did I get here? Yeah. You're bringing me back to life and you're, you're, you're breathing, mm-hmm. your, you're breathing your wind, your ruach into my life and you're, you're waking me up. Mm. And, 
and and to to answer your question finally then the reality is is that i don't actually have to then leave that place of weakness like it's been one threshold after the other after the other in this last 18 months of having to face those idols having to face how deeply and connected i was to them and asking the question am i going to believe on the back side of this that you might that i might belong to you mm-hmm. or i'm going to believe a lie and that still is the question of the day hmm. it's still the question of the day hmm. when i wake up in the middle of the night and I'm out of a dead sleep and I'm afraid. Mm. And I'm afraid because, oh, God, you took such good care of us last month. You provided exactly the manna that we need, the, exactly our, our needs were met, but now it's another month and I'm afraid. Mm. And instead now of, of, of being a kid who says, I'm afraid, but these are the things I'm gonna do now, and these are the things I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna play my part and I'm gonna do these things to make sure that I don't have to be afraid anymore. I say, God, I'm afraid. I just want to enter your house. I just, I, I don't know why I left your house. I don't know why I left your table, but I'm just going to come back. And, and the passage of scripture that continues to just play in my mind that has just been, has just been like this healing balm for me is when David in Psalm 27 says, there's just one thing I ask and that I would seek. And that, that is to dwell in your house all of the days of my life and to gaze upon your beauty. Mm-hmm. You know, those days in those moments where I'm afraid, those moments when I'm, when I'm feeling that performance creeping back in and I'm, and I'm, I'm measuring myself based on what my expectations have been or what I think success looks like or how I, how I think God wants to provide for me are the days where I've left his house. Mm. They're the days where I've stopped gazing on his beauty. And on those moments where I can instead lay in bed in the middle of the night and say, Daddy, I'm afraid. So good. And I want to just come back to your house. And he says, why did you ever leave? You never had to leave. And every time that shame, you know, creeps into me of like, I'm afraid because I did something or I thought something or I'm not this that I think I should. I just had this sense that the father just looks at me and says, you don't have to go. Mm-hmm. If you go, it's your decision, but I, I want you to stay. Mm. And um, that has made all the difference in the world because I can come to speak to you all and, and truly, honestly realize everything that could have been lost either was lost or has been redeemed mm-hmm. or clarified mm-hmm. for the truth that it is. And I can really say like, I've lost a lot and I don't have anything else to lose and anything else to gain and nothing to prove because I belong. That's it. I belong. Mm -hmm. Brad, thank you so much for sharing vulnerably and in that vulnerable place, like exhortatively, like you've exhorted me and us. And I hope that as people are listening, that if you hear and when you hear of a pastor leaving or whatever, instead of automatically assuming the worst, like you're saying and filling in the blanks with whatever, um, but to do as first Corinthians 13 says in love always hopes. So even if there is like, yeah, he needed to lose his job. I'm not speaking of Brad right now, but of people, um, 
that we always hope for them. Yeah. yeah. And if I, if there's one piece of encouragement that I could give listeners, um, invite the person you don't understand to your table. Hmm. There's power in the fellowship around the table. I mean, you said, Matt, you know, the thing you, you think of in your house is your table. Mm. There's reason that there's power in communion, mm. in breaking of bread and of prayer. And the fact of the matter is, is that for, Mich- for Michelle and I, the thing that we longed for most when we stepped down and when I was no longer in that role, um, we were never invited over for dinner for, with people. I think except by you. Oh, I know. I was like, can we please hang out? I think that's the out? reality. But, the, but I think that the thing is, is that again, our awkwardness so often because we don't know if we're going to say the right things yeah. or if we, we don't want to ask the right, the wrong things, or we don't want to impose. But the reality is, is that to love well is to put all of those needs that I have aside for clarity to just simply invite somebody over to my home. Yep. To break bread with them. Yep. That is the most loving thing you could do in that moment because it's an incredibly alienating and isolating process mm. to walk through that. Mm. And the gift, even if, even if I would say this as radical as this is, even if the leaving is on negative terms, even if it's because of there's, there's conflict or there's issues that have come up or there's differences of opinions or things like that. Even if you don't agree with that person, if we can't willingly serve one another, the elements of the Eucharist to each other, um, we've got work to do yeah. in ourselves, but that, that is the, the unifying work of Jesus that exists at the, at, in that place around the table. So good. And such a good way to wrap this mini series. Um, just if we have those questions of each other, just to open up our hearts in our homes and, and just, we don't have to be afraid of each other. We know we've been talking about our hearts for forever in this podcast and just that we all have these good needs inside of us and we run to different places. And so if we can start seeing each other heart to heart, eye to eye and over bread and good food that I know you make, Brad. So <laughs> You're always welcome. Thank you, <laughs> vice versa. I really think that that's gonna make some difference, especially in our world today. So Brad, thank you so much for sharing your heart and just exhorting us so beautifully. Thank you for having me, what a privilege. Such a joy. Guys, if you want to connect to Brad uh, for any old reason, we're going to be the filter. We'll be his bouncer. But come to podcast at himhministries.com and we will forward it on to him. And if he can respond, he'll respond. And uh, if you want to, we would love to hear your prayer requests. Some of you guys do that. So you can submit those prayer requests. You can, you can connect with me on social media or email us at podcast at himhministries.com or me directly, Lori, same at sign. Our question of the week for next week is what drew you to your first friend as a kid? Was it a game? Was it like you live near each other? Was it mutual likes for something like Polly Pockets, etc.? Uh, we're going to be talking about friendship next week with Kelly Needham. We've had her before. We're having her back to talk about her book called Friendish. So we're super excited for that. 
And thanks so much for joining us. For all of us here at the Hole in My Heart podcast, we'll see you next week. Guys, if you want to connect to Brad, uh, let's say you're a past... Easy for you to say. <laughs> oh, tornado warning. <gasps> Take shelter now. Oh, snap. Um, okay. Oh, my gosh. Yep. We'll just wrap this another time. Can I come back? Do we just do it? I'll I do would it right say now. do it. Okay. I'm just going to do it real quick. Yeah. We'll see you next week. Hopefully, because there's a tornado. Wow. That's the first. Really? It's been a while. Uh, I mean, tornado since warning? we've been doing oh, this. Oh, yeah, since wow. we've been. I know. Yeah. I don't know if you in the studio. So uh, what so do we no, actually do? This might be the weirdest thing that do we just uh, get in the car? of the day. Well, let me see here. I don't know if I would advise you to get in a car. We should probably look at a radar. This morning, um, when I'm, I'm standing in It ends at 843. I'm going to ask my babysitter um, to take guys, yeah, take Yeah, have them go downstairs. I'm going to text Kelly the same thing. Comes into my mind. Really? I have no like I have no idea when the last time I heard that song was. But you were talking, <laughs> and it was just like looking back at the things I've done and trying to be someone. Break my part. I'm gonna show you the shape of my heart. I love the Backstreet Boys. Hello? Hey. So.